you know, the Tower of Babel, um, there's a lot of different ways we can look at it, but it's, it's the story in Genesis about people coming together to do what they saw as mighty things. They were centralizing their power, they were centralizing their technology, and they were, they were trying to storm heaven itself with it. They were, they were sort of building a monument to their own greatness and, and trying to access power in a certain kind of way. And, and the text is really sparse, so it's open to lots of different interpretations, but God ends up confusing their languages in the story to where people who are constructing this tower suddenly can't communicate with each other. And they're forced to diversify as a species. They're forced to scatter to different places and not concentrate their wealth and power and ambition in one place. And when I think of this pandemic that we're currently facing, it seems to me like we've had decades of knowing our, the, the devastating consequences of our ecological footprint on the earth. Losing the years to save my days In the fall of 98 Wish we could do anything Wish we were kids again Mother says in the morning Father still will be sleeping This year has brought so many of us to grips with parts of our lives, worlds, communities, faith, medicine, politics, schooling, and I'm sure there are many other countless categories that I'm not including there. And it's brought those things right into the limelight and into the face-to-face of our day-to-day lives. Things that we used to be quickly and easily able to bury away and store away to deal with another day. This pandemic has changed all of that. In this conversation, one of the lines that really struck the most with me is there's a straight line from the way that we've acted in the past to the beliefs that we have now. It seems like we've treated our relationship with science and everything that encompasses that and faith or religion and everything that encompasses that in a straight line mentality. If X happens, Y is the result. And that's just not how any of this works. Hi there, I'm Seth. You're listening to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I brought back Mike Morell because at the end of the first episode that we did on mysticism and contemplation, we talked a bit about a hope for the church. And it was really a foreboding conversation in light of the way that we're all living right now. Now this conversation's a little bit dated. So at release, we're halfway through August and this was recorded in July. And so there's a lot of the science that has changed, but not in a definite way that changes the impact of the conversations. There may be some things in here that you don't agree with. And I would challenge you to hit pause, research it yourself, wrestle with it and see where it sits with you. And then what do you do after that? Let's roll the tape with Mike Morrell. Mike Morell, thanks for making the time late on a, what day is it? Wednesday? Tuesday? Tuesday. One of these days, a couple days after July 4th to come back on. I can't tell you the amount of feedback I get from the prior episode that we did. And then as I listened back to it a few days ago, I didn't realize that we talked for as long as we did, but it didn't seem like that long. So (laughs) was it it a bit loquacious? 
I don't know what that word means. That's that's a that's a fifty cent word. I I stay, <laughs> I try to stay in the ten cent region. So got it, got what, it. I'll, what does I'll bargain bin my vocabulary? <laughs> what does loquacious mean? <laughs> just just like you know, waxing eloquent, uh, voluminous, <laughs> okay, voluminous speech. I was watching a show. What's it called? Outlander on Netflix. I've been watching yes. that, which I'm quite in, enjoying. And she used a word that said licentious, and I literally hit pause. Like I don't know what that word means. And I know what it means now. And I was like, this is a fantastic word. Bible? Licentiousness? We had one. I didn't read it. (laughs) But but yeah. Yeah, it's still still in the house somewhere. Um, I'm sure it's packed away, buried with its red edges along every single page. So Mm. yeah, but no, I'm finding so many words lately, especially from that show, because it's it's set so long ago. I'm like, oh, this is a fantastic word. I'm going to use this today. Although I haven't found the ability to use licentious until just now. But, But either way. Welcome back to the show. So for those that are, have not listened to that episode because they're lazy, um, or for those that are unfamiliar with you, kind of what is new for you? I'm not going to go have you go back through kind of, you know, what makes you you because they can go back and listen to that. And that's a great episode. But what has been new in the last like, what, 18 months, 24 months that since since we talked? So what's kind of happened in your life? Yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, the last 18 to 24 months for me have so putting it in the most proactive way possible, been kind of like a, a rite of passage or an initiation uh, into and through the, the pain of life, the difficulty of life. Mm. You know, quite candidly, had some illnesses in the family, some structural issues with the home we live in, um, all kinds of pressure that has produced in me, you know, various responses ranging from, you know, sort of anxiety and fatigue and a sense of utility to discovering a kind of resilience underneath all of that Hmm. because you know it's like what other choice do I have and you know that was even before this global COVID-19 pandemic that we've all woken Hmm. up in these last several months so yeah, so it's been it's been a lot of difficulty. I, I could you know be like, oh, here's all the cool stuff I've been doing, but it's it's been a lot of um, kind of finding my sea legs in the middle of you know sort of these external crises and the internal uh, conditions that they've, they've created in me. Yeah, I think we've all been doing that. Every I got in an argument today at work with someone refusing to wear a mask, and he's wow. like, he's like, what did he say? He said, I don't have to wear a mask to enter your building. I said. You're right, but you don't enter the building without a mask. So, and he's like, you can't do that. I was like, we're a private institution and I don't have an opinion because I'm currently getting paid. So my opinion is whatever my boss's opinion is. And that's the opinion. And he got so yeah. mad. But yeah, I think everybody's figuring out their sea legs because nobody, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't train you for mass hysteria, trauma and reality. Oh. And reality. And I don't mean hysteria in the, conspiratorial way like i literally mean hysteria like i don't know what's happening right now like i yeah 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 at least you know in in the west in our generation we haven't encountered um but the external conditions of something like a pandemic and it's really stress testing the internal uh situation that we've had the rhetorical situation that we've had in our country for you know at least i would say a decade if not 20 years the sort of um what I would call the Fox Newsification of America, not to get too <laughs> political, but, you know, can I say this in church, you Seth? You sure can. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I just mean like, 
man, you know, I was around for the early days of what was called the emerging church conversation, where we were trying to learn from post-modernity and the postmodern turn in philosophy and how that impacted reality. And it was all about recognizing that there wasn't no grand meta-narrative, but we all had these various interlocking subjectivities that we, we could share together. And our theological foes at the time liked to emphasize how that was all just a bunch of relativism and that would just lead us down a slippery slope of having no convictions, no morality, no right or wrong. And, you know, here we find ourselves in in 2020 and we have alternative facts and mm. everything is called fake news. And there seems to be a, a deliberate strategy of continuous outright lying that is not meant to form a coherent alternative narrative, but is simply meant to cause to question our, our very bearings at any given moment. It's like gaslighting on a national stage. Mm. And, and I find it you know, sad and darkly comical that some of these very same theological foes that were railing against, you know, Brian McLaren and Jacques Derrida uh, <laughs> are now in lockstep with some of the biggest liars and truth manipulators mm. of today. And equally so, you know, that many people who were, you know, my, my fellow emergent explorers have had to eat a little bit of humble pie because we find ourselves being the ones who are insisting that there's such a thing as real right and wrong and that we should, you know, actually uh, be willing to sacrifice for the strength of our convictions. Mm. It's a, a role reversal that I haven't gotten entirely used to yet. <laughs> Why is that a role reversal? Like, I don't. I'm not putting those two pieces together. So in the past, you you were arguing there isn't really a right or wrong, or am I mishearing well, you? man, it just felt like we had a lot more space to argue things in the abstract in the 90s and, okay. and even the early 2000s. I mean, maybe maybe once 9-11 happened, that began to sort of shift underneath our feet a little bit. But it was more along the lines of, you know, not that there was no such thing as right or wrong, but it was more of a sense of, you know, a value of tolerance and inclusion and, and other terms like that that I still believe in, but mm -hmm. they were sort of elevated to the top of the pile um, as opposed to things like, you know, truth telling and justice and, you know, making sure that people who have really been given the short end of the stick, uh, societally speaking, marginalized communities, um, getting a voice. Like in, in the 90s and early 2000s, the conversation was really life-giving, but it was mostly dominated by white folks and mostly dominated by dudes, you know, like us, Still now. Uh, but, but exclusively. <laughs> yes. And, you know, there was this, just a, I didn't know what I didn't know. And mm -hmm. that would lead me to probably expending a lot more energy on abstractions than I have the patience for now. Gotcha. Yeah. Talking back with a bit of the Fox Newsification and stealing something that I shouldn't because I'm paraphrasing it incorrectly. It basically said, what did it say? I read it earlier. It said, there is a straight line from teaching multiple generations that science is fake, young earth creationism is real, et cetera, et cetera, to now they don't believe the things about the health crisis. Like there's a straight line right. in church, you're complicit, that we, yeah. you know, we did this and now we can't be surprised that so many people are like, what, I don't believe it. I can't believe it because science doesn't matter. Um, and I read that a couple of times. I was like, Damn, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's painful, but but I think it's true. Like there's an approach to religion, an approach to faith that says it's primarily about things not only that, that are so that are subtle, but that are unverifiable, and we can never verify them. And the people who are 
speaking of things that can be verified are the enemy and they're simply trying to confuse us. When I was raised as a homeschooler in the late 80s and, and 90s, um, as a young earth creationist, we were told that the fossil record was put there as a lie from Satan to <laughs> test our faith. So, yeah. you know, sometimes I feel like my atheist friends lack nuance when critiquing religion, but I also can't blame them if they were raised in similar circles where, you know, they were told that things you can verify with your senses are unreliable. And the only things that are reliable are these, you know, sort of Gnostic secrets that we, the persecuted elect, are, are stewarding. Unfortunately, it really did set us up for a generation, um, particularly like our parents' generation, who are just super accepting of conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. distrusting of all expertise. Um, you know, it's sort of like living in the upside down in, in Stranger Things. Yeah. And, and part of my passion for, for mysticism is that it's an evidentialist faith. It's an evidentialist path. Uh, I might be called to extend a little bit on faith, a little bit on a wing and a prayer, but not for very long. It's about being willing to check out an intuition and see if it jibes with my experience, with the collective experience, with the collected wisdom of the tradition. And that is very different than just believe it because, you know, quote unquote, God said it or mm -hmm. quote unquote, Bible said it, which is really just code for here's what, you know, our, our dogma has asserted for at least 40 years <laughs> that yeah. we're going to claim this from time immemorial uh, and, and, and so swallow it whole. It's a very different approach. So there is a part in our prior episode, actually side note before I get there, you'd be surprised how the more I learn about church history, when people uh, will start talking religion with me and I'll say, well, tell me why you believe that. And then I'll ask them how old it is. And they'll be like, oh, well, this goes to back to like Jesus time. And I'm like, no, that's like 1942 or that. And they're like, what? And I'm like, that, that's, it didn't exist before that. And they're like, yeah. that's not true. I'm like, it, it, it is. Like, what would I do with that? That's the question. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'll never forget when I was an undergrad and, and I was a religion minor and our the head of our, our religion department, uh, Harvey Hill, who is now an Episcopal priest. But at the time he was, you know, an Episcopal layman and, uh, mainline Protestant and, mm -hmm. you know, very, very expansive, very generous in heart, very patient with all of the, the Southern evangelicals and fundamentalists who would come into his intro religion courses, wanting to set him straight about uh, the Bible <laughs> and, and historic Christian theology. And I was, you know, kind of in the very early stages of detoxing from that. And we had, we had kind of become friends. And I don't know, one time I was sitting in his office and I was asking him, like, why did he there was still a bit that mystified me about, you know, this, this intelligent man who was also a very pious um, Episcopalian, like, why was he a part of that church? And he was like, honestly, it's because evangelicalism just isn't traditional enough for me. Hmm. And I was like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, we're like, this is what Bible taught. And he's like, yeah, you know, a lot of what you think the Bible taught has really emerged, you know, since the Scopes Monkey Trial, since, you know, the um, the pamphlets on the five fundamentals, like it arises from this sort of early 20th century fundamentalist modernist controversy. And he's like, and sometimes my branch of the church becomes, you know, overly uh, dependent on the modernist side of things. And, you know, those who marry to the spirit of the age will become a widow in the next. He's very honest about that, but he's like, you know, honestly, y'all aren't traditional enough and you, know, you, ought to, you ought to be willing to dig in deeper. And his challenge to me has really served me well over the years. 
So I asked you, getting back to where I, I can't stop going off rabbit trails today, one of the last questions that I asked you in our last episode was, if you had to zoom out three or four years, what mm-hmm. would like be a hope for the church that we should invest energy into? And you mm-hmm. spoke about it for about a minute and a half. But honestly, as I look back upon, and I spoke with a couple friends, Glenn being one of them, I think you know Glenn. Yes. And I was like, hey, Glenn, this is what you did your dissertation on. We should talk. He's like, I don't know what to say, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but church specifically, and fa- and not just our church, not just our faith tradition, but all of them have had to change and pivot so many different things. And my fear is anything that we were investing energy in in the past, which was really, I think, about preserving buildings and structures uh, for the for the most part, and maybe salaries. If you were to re-answer that question today of here's maybe some things that we should invest church from just some of your experiences or the people that you talk to with the current climate, like what possibly would you say to that? Yeah. You know, can I indulge in a bit of hubris for a moment and quote myself from your handy dandy as a starting off point? Sure. (laughs) Because when I I read this one paragraph in particular, I'm I'm struck by how uh, prescient it feels kind Mm -hmm. of in a pre-pandemic sort of way. I said, basically, looking at these various factors, catastrophic climate change, ocean acidification, desertification, deforestation, mass species extinction, being in the midst of the sixth great extinction um, of species on our planet, we're, we're losing so much biodiversity that it's heartbreaking. And because of all of this, I think as a culture, we're going to become more religious and not less as we're seeking to, uh, to find and ground in the meaning of our own contraction as a species. And so if I were talking to ministers today, I would be less concerned with the sort of preoccupied questions that people have been asking for the last few decades of how can we keep church relevant? How do we keep people in the seats and these sorts of you know, logistical questions and asking more about how do we practice hospice care? How do we be with someone who's dying? How do we be with an entire culture and way of life that's dying? And man, that just feels... Um, prophetic in ways that I kind of wish weren't true because Mm. it it seems like it's a lot closer to home. When I said that, I was thinking, yeah, you know, 10 to 20 years from now, we're really going to be feeling a lot of this stuff, Mm -hmm. but I think we're starting to feel a lot of it now. And I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but I think even if we're narrowly focusing on um, the phenomenon of pandemics, my understanding is that we're, we're sort of opening up a Pandora's box of pandemics, further pandemics, from a few different angles, ranging from you know our, our Arctic ice shelves that are melting mm. and are actually releasing long dormant uh, viruses from like ten thousand plus years ago into the atmosphere, as well as you know plowing down vast swaths of of the Amazon rainforest and releasing what were previously relatively contained ecosystems, including their their virus load, and I just think that you know we're we're going to have to get used to what does it mean to suddenly have these new assaults on our being? And I've been reflecting on this recently in relationship to that, that ancient parable of the Tower of Babel. You know, the Tower of Babel, um, there's a lot of different ways we can look at it, but it's, it's the story in Genesis about people coming together to do what they saw as mighty things. They were centralizing their power, they were centralizing their technology, and they were, they were trying to storm heaven itself with it. 
they were they were sort of building a monument to their own greatness and, and trying to access power in a certain kind of way. And and the text is really sparse, so it's open to lots of different interpretations, but God ends up confusing their languages in the story to where people who are constructing this tower suddenly can't communicate with each other and they're forced to diversify as a species. They're forced to scatter to different places and not concentrate their wealth and power and ambition in one place. Hmm. And when I think of this pandemic that we're currently facing, it seems to me like we've had decades of knowing our the, the devastating consequences of our ecological footprint on the earth. We've had decades to realize that you know, increasing industrial meat production with its pollution runoff and its unsanitary conditions has consequences, that our increasing deforestation has consequences, that our increasing resource-intensive ways of life have consequences, but we've not voluntarily stopped building this tower. We've not voluntarily stopped the sort of centralization of our, of our ambition. And now it, it seems like, you know, God or Gaia or, or just the emergent phenomenon of our, of our whole ecosystem is, is putting on the brakes, you know, not just for church, but it's forcing us to disperse once again. It's forcing us to hmm. break into localities, you know, starting with localities of household, even, uh, of saying, man, shelter in place, it's the safest thing. If you're even breathing the air of your neighbor, it can be dangerous. Hmm. And, you know, there have been people who have rightly focused on the sort of, um, you know, death dealing ways of that and how that, that just does cut into our deepest values, both as, as humans and as, you know, aspiring Jesus followers of, of connectivity and hospitality and all of these things that we've, we've considered to be quintessentially human or quintessentially spiritual. But I, I think if we're, if we're digging a little deeper, it might end up forcing us to you know, as I think England at one point, um, they, the British government recommended that single people who were living alone uh, find a quarantine buddy and, and basically start uh, either literally merging households with them or making it to where they were the only two people that they saw, but kind of, you know, relying on each other for emotional support. Hmm, I hadn't seen and, Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. I had to find it. But you know, and it strikes me that people are, you know, starting to do that more and more, whether in really careful ways or in reckless ways of, of disregarding, you know, some of the social distancing or physical distancing. And, uh, and you know, and, and once again, starting to cluster and starting to socialize. I mean, even I find myself going to an outdoor pub and wearing a mask and seeing an out-of-town friend, uh, whereas I, you know, wouldn't have done that six weeks ago in my, my hypervigilance. And, and I think where that might be leading us to as communities, spiritual or otherwise, is a kind of relocalization, re-regionalization, where we are forming pods where we're saying, you know, for better or worse, we're sharing germs with each other. Uh, and what else can we share with each other? What else can we build together here on this way more human scale, on this way more decentralized scale? And you know, you'll recall that in the height of global lockdown, while there were a few hoax stories coming out, like dolphins swimming in the channel in Italy and stuff, there were also a lot of really true stories about, man, you can see the skyline in, yeah. in LA again. You mm. can see, you know, you see the mountains in, in Western North Carolina better than, than previous. You can see mm -hmm. stars better. And 
I think that, you know, it's telling that we're so frenetic to get back to business as usual when it's literally killing us. If we think of, of this pandemic is bad news, just wait until we meet catastrophic climate change and all of its fury. Uh, you know, I don't yeah. mean to sound like some, you know, angry old school prophet, but it's, it's really coming. And I think that the invitation to us is to dig in deep with hyper local community, hopefully preserve the communications gains that we have with our current technological ability, because I personally want the best of tribalism without the more xenophobic elements of tribalism, or, or if we're using a 10 cent word, more, more, more racist or, or, or prejudice um, tendencies that yeah. can come when you're isolating, especially in a pandemic situation. Yeah. You know, some anthropologists speculate that the origins of, of racism in our culture comes from, um, from the clash of different germ pools and germophobia mm. and the feeling that these other people are dirty because they have different germs than we do. And we can get really sick when we come into contact with yeah. them. So you know, what I'm looking at with my, my futurist hat on is, you know, over the next decade to 50 years, how will we be able to reap the best benefits of, of tribes and the fact that we as a species are made for small intimate bands of communion and belonging and all being in it together um, while eliminating some of the civilizational disease of racism that has come when, when tribes clash over scarce resources or having mm -hmm. these sort of, uh, germs that conflict with each other. And for those, I didn't read the whole transcript, nor did I listen to the entire episode we did last time, but I remember specifically using the word tribalism in the wrong way. And you're like, yeah, that's the wrong way to do it. I don't want to rehash that here, but I can still remember your answer. Um, so again, y'all should go back there. I also knew xenophobia. That's one of the words I know. So we can <laughs> <laughs> only, however, because of all the other books I've read, it's come up a bunch in a lot of books and conversations I've had over the last few months, mm -hmm. even with people of not a religious bent. I think a lot because of maybe Black Lives Matter. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even saw it in a comment thread earlier today that said, here's why we shouldn't open a ca the Canadian border. And you see like, I don't know if you've ever played that game Plague on like an iPhone or an iPad. I don't it's, think I have. It's like 99 cents. And the whole point of the game is I'm going to make a virus. And the goal is to infect everyone in the world and then genetically yeah. modify the organism so that you kill everyone before the WHO can come up with a cure. And so you're fighting against the scientists of the world. And it's, it's yeah, it's off. Well, it's honestly, though, it's a very hard game because one of the, the hardest parts of the game is the humans almost always win. They almost always find a way to beat the virus. And so you're the virus, uh, which wow. is kind of good. However, the maps look a lot like the current COVID maps. Like, because there's a, just a huge picture of the globe of the Mercator projection. And you just mm -hmm. see little dots of red start popping up everywhere. But that's what it looked like. And Canada had like two or three hotspots. And then basically there's like the border where they're like, yeah, we don't let people in here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But xenophobia has come up quite a bit as well as tribalism. And I get that. So my fear is this. So the church in 10 years will be an entirely different church. Um, it will have to be, and, and both arch, the mosques will be different, the synagogues will be different. I, when I say church, I, I mean religion, faith sure. organizations and bodies. But that mechanism matters. So like when there's an earthquake or a hurricane or a tsunami or something, like the mechanism of organized religion often can throw huge sums of money and bodies at things. And so do you right. see that still being a thing that we'll be able to do? And if we can't, how do we then as collective humans siloed off in small little pods band together when massive calamity happens, it doesn't happen to be a virus and we can safely get there and help. Yeah. 
I mean, that's such a good question. And I feel like that question is being answered in real time as faith communities are, you know, transitioning to Zoom gatherings and, and figuring out ways to make it make it work. And and so far, I would say that the the human connection element of, of these kinds of gatherings is a qualified success. Uh, qualified in the sense of, you know, it is not a face-to-face gathering like could happen if we did eventually say, all right, we are going to form these, lit- these literal bands of people uh, and, and be face-to-face with one another, kind of like, a, you know, a permaculture community or something mm-hmm. like that. But I, what I have heard is that for many people, um, Zoom-style worship is a bit more interactive and participatory than uh, stare at the, the you know, back of your neighbor's head, uh, church, like, you, know, look at and, you know, in these sorts of things. And that, that monologue is naturally leading a little bit more to dialogue when, you know, anyone who figures out how to unmute themselves can, can have a voice, whether the minister wants them to or not. Uh, <laughs> or everybody's unmuted. Everybody. Yes. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> unmuted. They actually saw a hilarious, I think it was an SNL skit about Zoom church in particular, where that was mm. going on. The pastor was, struggling to uh, to regain control of his <laughs> congregation. Um, but I think what remains to be seen is, okay, so pe- people might, you know, gather for, for Zoom church. It might even be a boost in attendance, as some people are discovering. But will these people continue to tithe? Will these people continue to give in the same way uh, to uphold, the, to upkeep the current buildings that are largely going unused? Mm-hmm. And if if months stretch into years, are people going to say, hey, let's jettison these buildings? And if people do say that, what impact would that have on the global economy if churches mm-hmm. began yeah. divesting of their buildings? Um, that alone would be you know, fascinating. And I don't know if in your day job you're, you're experiencing any, any early ripples of what these kind of economic impacts look like. We can't fall inside, inside this golden Yeah, I mean, I can talk to that. If you, oddly, I don't ever get to talk banking on this. So I have my own theories. And so for those that know me, or if there's anyone of my employer listening, I am not speaking for the institution that I work at, nor will you hear me say its name. However, what I do know is many that have been working from home are asking now that we're in like phase three or whatever, phase whatever in Virginia and in the coming weeks. Uh, well, because it's like one, one A, two, two A, three. Th- I don't know what letter we're on, but we're at the part where I can allow people in unlimited capacity. But it's about to change. And so what you'll see, though, is a lot of people have been requesting, hey, we made this whole infrastructure to work from home. My profitability is the exact same. Actually, maybe higher because you're not having to pay for the building, although they are having to pay for the building. But you can make a case that they don't have to. And so I honestly and from what I've seen, again, just me talking, what it what it appears to me is that the commercial real estate market will begin to shutter in the next year, 18 months. Um, which will cause a massive amount of debt that will either sit there and cripple the economy again, like another Dodd-Frank or like another Bear Stearns Lehman Brothers, just the inverse instead of stupid consumer packaged mortgages. It will be investment grade commercial mortgages. And then that will cascade to if I can work from home, then I don't have to live in LA to work at Google. I can live in Idaho in a mansion for 200 grand because I feel like it. 
Uh, yes. And so when that's the truth, then that will cause the home real estate market, the rental market specifically, to cripple. So you're, you're already seeing a lot of investors kind of move their money around of, okay, this is entirely, you know, when the bulk of commercial real estate is operated by Fortune 500 companies, and they mm-hmm. now can have data records from every country on the planet showing, oh, people actually, if we continue to pay them, they'll still do their job because they right. realized unemployment's at like 20%. And they can't get another one. So they work really hard at even at home. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And churches are the same way. Like we continue to tithe. Um, but that's because my church does a lot of things. Like if my church just hoarded money, I wouldn't tithe because I'm yep. not interested in an endowment fund. I'm interested yep. in, I mean, we do a lot of things. We don't, I don't need to talk about all that, but, but yeah, but I am fearful that uh, a lot of the things that we do do require a building um to navigate i mean we have a massive kitchen you know that type of stuff and we feed a lot of people and right. that, that requires it requires resources yeah, i i do think there there's a place for for buildings even in a in a pandemic world i mean the space that i'm currently uh speaking to you from is called Hawk Creek commons and it's an initiative of the missional wisdom foundation which is uh, loosely connected with the united methodist church and I don't know if this is officially how they would describe themselves or not, but one way that I describe them is that they look for underutilized church buildings and help transform them into genuine community hubs that are actually relevant for the community Mm. while retaining their use as a worship gathering space whenever possible. And so in the case of this space, even in the midst of COVID-19, the building itself has been largely closed. But the, the commercial kitchen downstairs has still been open for food trucks and caterers uh, mm-hmm. to come in. There is a, a, a sort of expansive garden in what was formerly the mm-hmm. parsonage next door, which is kind of a retreat house now. And again, they're not renting it out to random retreatants at the moment. But, um, you know, they're able to do uh, gardening and, and still be a hub. They've been giving away food to people in need. Mm-hmm. They've been doing various yeah. forms of outdoor meal sharing. And, uh, and right now they're doing you know, a, they're, they're a decent job, I think, at like a distanced, almost uh, VBS style thing for kids outside learning gardening skills, which, of course, is, you know, way safer than things indoors. So I think that, you know, architecturally, if, if, if sort of this is just the tip of the pandemic iceberg, as I fear it might be, where these novel diseases are, are, are either crossing barriers from time, you know, from more ancient times mm-hmm. or crossing barriers from species, uh, we'll have to start building more well aerated spaces that maybe have shelter overhead, but are um, you know way more um, you know allowing open. you know the air yeah openness yeah. to pass through. Yeah. And I think that you know there will be start to be the question of, of do people literally become uh, tribal in the best sense of the word uh, at that point? Will you know kind of like in, in old times perhaps uh, in, in Christendom where a church was the literal center of a physical community will people begin to physically relocate spatially relocate on the basis of the faith communities that um, they affiliate with if those faith communities as you're saying yours is Seth are doing a lot of very real and vital things in the community mm-hmm. uh, as, as my church also is in the midst of this you know the pastors I know, the sort of you know progressive ministers that I know, have a very hard line of we're not opening our building for worship in the foreseeable future. Unlike some of these, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of good people who are also experimenting with opening their doors. Don't mean to stereotype, but when I see uh, Robert Jeffress 
you know, in the First Baptist Dallas doing his uh, orgy of nationalism with, uh, with Mike Pence coming in and everybody, you know, standing, swaying really close to each mm. other. Like, yeah, can you breathe a little harder on each other? Like, I think that, that form of faith is going extinct and maybe even literally. I mean, I've seen, you know, there was one particular uh, conservative denomination where like 80 pastors have died of COVID-19 so far because mm. they refused to um, abide by, you know, keeping things closed. So this isn't just, you know, theoretical, like it's really happening. And I think a lot of people don't, don't realize that. But the, yeah, the communities of the future, you know, the, the ministers I know, they're just as busy as they've ever been, uh, if not more so. And I, I think if our economy does sort of pivot largely to more, co- you know, teleworking, which is the only thing I've done in my life pretty much, except for some people right out of college. Uh, on the one hand, I think that opens up all kinds of new beautiful possibilities. On the other hand, I know that it's not healthy to stare at a screen all day. And right. that if people are isolated in their homes and don't get to like have socialization with others, that that also ha- comes with a cost. That also has a deficit. So, so I would even say that the, the new tribalism or the healthy tribalism is an aspirational goal for me. It's not merely a prediction of a worst case scenario. It's a saying of, man, if we do end up having this mixed economy soon, of people working, you know, teleworking from home, uh, it'll be more valuable than ever to have a trustworthy, you know, set face-to-face community. Yeah. And I think, you know, the last time we saw this in Christianity in the West was during the Jesus movement. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, where you had the counterculture, you had a lot of um, you know the hippie hippies uh, who were getting saved, who were finding faith in usually pretty apocalyptic eschatology, emphasizing um, churches, kind of the emergence of places like Calvary Chapel out on the West Coast, and you had people just start living together as this this very authentic uh, outpouring of, of fellowship and, and affection for each other. Yeah, and you know it had its uh, its excesses and in fundamentalism and apocalypticism, but it also was for many people like the best period of their lives. And when they were told by some of the more straight laced, you know, suit and tie wearing church members that they needed to stop all that commune stuff and, and you know, dress better, they, there was a real loss in, in the vitality of, of their experience of faith. But I think that, you know, what's coming does give us the opportunity for new forms of intentional community, whether literal or simply a mindset shift where some of these existing uh, faith communities can begin seeing themselves as the physical hubs of their actual neighborhoods. I want to talk about this extinction event because I've never heard the words sixth great extinction. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and also, I want to say how excited I am to transcribe the word uh, First Baptist Dallas and something something orgy of a church service that's gonna be that's gonna be fun um but it's fine i have actually driven past his church it's a really beautiful church it's just a massive skyscraper downtown dallas but i'm assuming like the dinosaurs would be an extinction event but what are you talking about with currently because i think most people ambivalently just plow along on facebook or on whatever news they want to watch especially with all of this stuff you, you kind of I've come to find that people do one of two things. They go off the deep end and find all the worst things in the world, and they just spend all of their time focusing on that, which I think is traumatic. And you have the other people that just insulate themselves and only read news that they want to read, and they don't read anything. So what is what do you mean when you say six extinction event? Like I don't I didn't even know there was five personally. I just I didn't know. I don't I don't know. <laughs> 
Sure. Yes. So, you know, anthropologists, archaeologists would say that we've had five great extinction events in our past, you know, best known one, of course, being the extinction of the dinosaurs. There are these different different eras. And, And the one that we're in right now is, you know, the era that we're in right now is known as the Anthropocene. And it's marked by the the, the emergence of, of Homo sapiens sapiens, aka us. Mm-hmm. So it's the era of us, and it's one of the, the shortest eras so far. You know, Homo sapiens sapiens, humans as we know us today, have existed for, you know, arguably 200,000 years to a million years tops, depending on, you know, where you start defining the fine uh, distinctions of, of consciousness and, and how we are. And the sixth great extinction refers to this mass loss of, of biodiversity that we're experiencing right now, ranging from um, loss of, of life in the ocean, which contains a majority of our life on this planet, and we're losing ocean biodiversity at an enormous rate. You know, the Great Barrier Reef is um, is, become, is becoming dissolved. The Arctic ice shelves are are are, just, are melting, and a lot of animal species across the board, mammals, birds, insects are, are dying off in mass. It's, it's becoming to the point where the, mass, the vast majority of biomass on our planet are human beings and the things that we eat. So the animals that mm. we are sort of mass growing in these, these CAFOs, these industrial um, meat operations, uh, that, that's most of the animal diversity that we have. And so wild animals of all kinds are, are disappearing. And if you want a taste of this, you know, just think back, you know, we're, we're roughly the same age. Think about when you were a kid and you, you would, you know, be driving along in a car. If you can remember, there's something that happened when we were younger that doesn't happen anymore. And that is insects splattering on our windshields. Insects used to splatter on our windshields. All over the place, yeah. We had to use our wipers. We had to use, you know, the windshield washer fluid. It doesn't happen so much anymore. Um, you know, every every kind of insect and uh, and honey producing bees are all dying off. And it, you know, that's why it amazes me, frankly, that when people get involved in these really convoluted conspiracy theories, like I was a conspiracy theory junkie in high school. You know, talk to me about. Uh, pyramids and ancient aliens and UFOs and, you know, secret societies. And I was there. It was, it seemed like a, a simpler time when, when conspiracy uh, models were not as politicized, but it's like the, the current thing is staring us in the face and maybe it's not a conspiracy per se, but I think it's the, the sort of um, habitual accumulation of our, our sleep as a species. There's a very important way in which we're asleep to the, the uh, impact of our actions. So, which, which uh, bio- evolutionary biologists tell us is a little, is kind of hardwired. Because what I was talking about earlier about how for hundreds of thousands of years, we lived in, in band societies and tribal societies where we had community of, you know, 20 to an upper limit of maybe like 200 people. That is pretty much the circumference of our empathy by and large. Like that's, hmm. that's, that's how many people that we're able to kind of handle hmm. on a hard level and, and really care about. And, and, that, and, the, and the amount of land that, that we occupy is the amount of land that we're, we have the sort of emotional processing power to, uh, to, to work with. When we began overextending ourselves in the civilization project, everything became an abstraction. 
you know, there's a quote that I'm not going to get right, but it's sort of like, you know, if one person dies, it's a tragedy. If a million people dies, it's a statistic. Um, you know, we, we feel a lot more for like one person we know or one story well told than to just say 130,000 people have died of COVID-19 so far. Yeah. That's not going to move me as much as my friend who has, you know, three relatives who have died so far. And, you know, she talks about how it was like when they were intubated and when they had to make the decision of whether or not to start amputating toes, you know, like that's just a whole different mm -hmm. level of emotional engagement. And so when we began industrializing, especially in the industrial revolution, we weren't really aware of the consequences of our actions. There was a, you know, a group of people that were driving this change and getting wealthy on this change. They were creating a new middle class. Lots of other people stayed poor or got even poorer because they left the sort of predictable rhythms of farm life and began working in factory life and really unsanitary conditions, especially before the labor movements yeah. stepped in. And you know, as a result, we, we have all this outsized um, you know, effects of pollution and, and ecological degradation. And now the problem is so big and almost everybody thinks it's somebody else's problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to say, well, do we, do we act local? Do we think global? Oh. You know, is it businesses? <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. And, but is it businesses' responsibility? Is it government's responsibility? Will people regulate themselves? Do people need to be super regulated? These are all, yeah. you know, very, very real questions that, that people are asking. And, you know, the single, single best um, book that I know on, on the subject, I'm going to try to find the title of the name for you. I think I, even though I've, I've read it and I recommend it to people, I often block it out because it's a very... You don't have the empathy for it. It's not in the 200 books on your shelf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't have the empathy for it. I just have like, you know, what, what in the world? Um, and so, it, it, but it's a really good... Um, it's a really good look journalistically. It's kind of a, you know, science journalism of what is, is going on. It was originally a, um, it was originally a, an article in the New Yorker that ended up getting larger and I'll, I'll come back to it cause I'm, I'm not seeing it. All. Well, I have a question. I want to break it into two and I'll make it the final two questions. So of yeah. all of the things that you quoted yourself saying earlier, and I will agree when I read it again, a few days ago, I was like, this is awful. It's awful how, how and I've come back to a few of those. Like I did some on race as well that I've been reposting. And I was like, wow, this is, this could have been written yesterday. You know, it's the same, the same conversation, which is really sad. What has been the church's complicity in allowing us to get where we're at now? And then maybe, I'm curious, based on what you said your friend said about um, Protestantism not being traditional enough, if you think maybe orthodoxy is a possible way forward in the yeah. future of the church, which will make, I think, a lot of people uncomfortable mm -hmm. if, if that's not what you grew up in. Like, what do you mean? What is this icon? I don't know what an icon is. I'm not comfortable with this. I don't worship an idol, although arguably most people make the Bible an idol, but that's a different whole other conversation. So kind of, yeah. So what is maybe some of the church's complicity in getting us where we're at now, be that politics, empire, power, whatever it is? Um, mm -hmm. And then maybe what are your thoughts on orthodoxy going forward as a way to pivot out of it? So part one of the question, you know, how are we complicit? I mean, there, there's so many different ways to respond to that question. I think, you know, we can, we can sort of trace our narrative complicity to this understanding of the Genesis mandate of, of having dominion over the earth, mm. like that particular translation choice leading many to think of the earth as a, a thing and a commodity to be used 
And, you know, if we sketch out the history of ideas on that from, you know, especially Western or Latinized Christianity, they just kind of go from bad to worse in terms of the, you know, the, the increasing mind-body split, the increasing, you know, split between the world and what is perceived to be divinity or the eternal or what really matters. It's kind of like a, you know, a Neoplatonism on steroids, uh, as opposed to orthodoxy, which actually is also very Neoplatonic, but there's a, there's a form of Platonism that really does honor the, the manifest world. Uh, and sometimes it's, I think, lazy thinking that, says, that wants to just throw all of that out because you really do have, as you were alluding to, you know, icons and worship, which are a reflection of the fact that, that we as humans and that all creative beings are, are bearers of the Imago Dei, of, of the image of God. And, you know, it's not to say that that tradition is, is pristine either, but I think especially in the West, you know, starting with maybe like Augustine and the sort of loathing of, um, of the flesh or, you know, even before that, uh, you know, Tertullian, some others, all the way to premillennial dispensationalism sort of left behind eschatology that says, hey, I can drive an SUV because Jesus is coming to rapture us out of here soon. Mm. The world is going to burn. And I think that, that that was like the final tragic, you know, piece of it all. It, it's like they never uh, read Origen and his understanding of the different senses of scripture and the rich being able to read things symbolically and metaphorically. So when, you know, the author of, of the epistles of Peter writes that the, you know, the elements are going to melt and the, the world is going to be engulfed in fire, that First century readers were intelligent enough, second century readers were intelligent enough to know that that was a profound symbolic way to, um, to explain the regime change, the end of sacrificial religion as we knew it, and this way of breaking bread together and the radical love and inclusion of Jesus to a, yeah, one day there's like literally going to be, you know, combust yeah. combustion happening on the planet. And you know, I guess the moon is literally going to turn to hemoglobin by that same <laughs> measurement. And it's, just, you know, reductive literalism is, is one of, of the enemies. Mm -hmm. And I would think like, even it relates to our uh, early Christianity's attitudes toward the body and sexuality. You know, one of my hats, I do these book launches and with Speakeasy. And one of the books that I promoted about a year ago was called uh, Jewish and Christian Views of Bodily Pleasure. And it made the case that in the, the biblical era, roughly, you know, defined like Second Temple Judaism through the New Testament, that both Jewish and Christian people were ambivalent about the body, were ambivalent about the flesh. Like if you look at the, the biblical record, there are some things that seem to honor and, um, and, and, and respect and celebrate being in flesh, being in the body, you know, think, think Song of Songs, mm -hmm. think, you know even from the wound in Jesus' side. But then there also were things that were sort of more body negative or sex negative. Well, the author then traces out sort of post all of that, when you get into rabbinical Judaism after the fall of the, of the, the temple in AD 70, and then you get into, you know, the evolution of Christianity, that rabbinical Judaism gradually became more and more pro-body, began to officially love and sanctify uh, sex as a part of their, um, you know, synagogue life, as a part of Jewish piety, that, you know, that, that sex became a form of prayer. But increasingly, uh, Christianity became more and more ascetic, more and more anti-body, anti-pleasure, anti-sensory experience. Mm. And, and I think that the reasons for that are complicated and, and that we ought not 
too quickly assume what's going on. You know, one, one text that I became aware of back in undergrad days um, was a, an extra canonical writing called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And Thecla was this woman uh, who, in, according to a certain, you know, stream that some might disparage or write off as, as Gnostic, she was this, you know, woman who was on par with Paul and was this sort of, you know, apostle and, and teacher and figure. And, um, and she was uh, celibate. She was, you know, did not have, um, you know, she did not have any relations with men. And the way it's described in the text, which is the, the socioeconomic reality of the time, is it was empowering, just as it was for many um, nuns in particular, as, as Christianity began to grow, for a woman to say, no, my, my sex is not to make babies, it's not to serve men, it's not to fall into this particular, you know, unhealthy form of patriarchy, was actually a way to, to reclaim a certain amount of power. And I think also for some men in early Christianity to, to reclaim, um, you know, to claim celibacy was a way for them to, you know, not be involved in the sort of uh, I'll use the term again, twice in one podcast, the drunken orgies of Rome. Uh, <laughs> we're all about the orgies this episode. We say that at church. I'll, uh, make, I'll make it the title. Why not? <laughs> you know, <yeah. laughs> Perfect. Orgies, orgies, orgies. Um, yes. And so, you know, there, there, there was a, a certain decadence of sexuality in Rome that wasn't necessarily about the acts themselves, but the ways in which they, they reinforced uh, certain lines of power and domination and subjugation of mm. young boys, of women, uh, of slaves. And, you know, so I think that early Christianity, as it began to have more of a confrontation with imperial power, used celibacy as a powerful way to say no uh, to the, the forms of, of empire domination that sexuality inherently implied in that culture. Mm. But you know, it's kind of like a cosmic game of telephone when things get lost in translation. Something that maybe had a very good use in a particular context then gets lifted out of context and is made sacrosanct for future generations, regardless of culture and context. And so suddenly you yeah. have, you know, abstaining from sex, period, as the ideal for, for clergy in the Western church. And you have, um, you know, a sense of, of a reinforcement of this belief that already can be present in Judeo-Christian Islamic spirituality that emphasizes the otherness of God and monotheism of saying that the body is, is impure, that the, the least we do, the, the less we do with the body, probably the better. And that has such uh, direct implications for our views of ecology, because, you know, if, if the body is evil, then so is the animal kingdom. So is getting in the dirt. Yeah. Like those, those all are things that are maybe necessary, but are, are shadows of this eternal deathless realm to come where we're all just going to be singing in a choir and, uh, you know, in, in not even having bodies, hopefully. Yeah. So it, huh. it, it, you know, that, that's, that's one of, of many different ways to unpack, I think, the, the harmful legacy that Christianity doesn't have to have, but often does emphasize. Hmm. Yeah, I would like to ask other questions, but we don't have time because I, I, I gave you a time limit. So I want to I wanna try to honor that. It's a question I've been asking everyone this entire year, and I really enjoyed it. So I'll make this the last question, and then I'll let you get back to your family. And, and, and again, thank you for this evening. So if you, Mike, were talking with someone via Zoom, because I guess that's the best way that we can do it today, yep. and they said, all right, so I don't... I don't know what you mean when you say God. Like when you say God, the divine, whatever word you want to use, what are you actually intending to say, Mike? So if you were going to try to wrap words around whatever the heck that is, what would you say? 
Mm. That is such a good question. You know, just before I got on here, I, um, I posted uh, something on, online. I think I'll, I'll read it because it's short and it's relevant to your question. Mm. I said, you know, whether we're having conversations around privilege, injustice, and systemic oppression, or around legacy, virtuous cycles, and paying it forward, most of us have no idea the full impacts of our actions on the world around us, be they life-giving or death-dealing. And we spiritual and religious folks like to talk a big game, don't we? We use such expansive words like God and grace and love and redemption. But how many of us, if we were to slow down, have actually touched the essence of these words with any sort of sustained contact? Most of us don't even know the meaning of ourselves, never mind God. And, and where I ended up going with this is, you know, if divine judgment that so many people fear and threaten others with means knowing as I am known, then I say, bring on the judgment and start with me. May I truly know myself so I can take in the landscape and the detail alike, so I can have a lever and a place to stand. And so I would say that if someone's wanting to know God, which is a very lofty thing that we all too casually say, especially as religious folks, it's worth taking the time to know ourselves. And before I can even know myself, it take, it, it's worthwhile to witness myself, to observe myself, to remember myself, which for me, uh, in some of the sort of esoteric training I have, to put it in ridiculous terms, it's, uh, it's taking snapshots of myself throughout the day. Sometimes literally, because actually my, my youngest daughter thinks that, you know, my phone is her toy. Mm -hmm. So she'll grab the phone and she'll start taking pictures of either selfies of herself or she'll start taking pictures of me. And the pictures of me she takes are from very unflattering angles. And they're usually <laughs> when I'm awake, just waking up or doing something, you know, being preoccupied. And I used to delete them from my phone, but I keep them now because I'm like, this is not the manicured selfie that I post on Instagram. This is from all the wrong angles with my gut hanging out, with my eyes looking as tired as they do. And whether having that literal snapshot or also being able to kind of take a more impression snapshot of myself, and I don't mean this in any profound way. I mean, like literally what posture am I holding? What am I doing with my body? What, if, what can I feel like? What emotional state am I having in a given moment? I've got to start from there. I have to start from reality because so much, many of us, especially religious folks, live in fantasy land. Mm. We live in the sense of what is, our, what is our idealized self that we hope will happen tomorrow. And so before I can even begin to know myself, I need to like observe myself. And that's usually kind of a humbling experience at first, but there's also a certain grace in it. There's also a certain amount of, of slack I begin to cut myself of like, man, no wonder... No wonder I'm so anxious. Like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it like holding myself with my shoulders rounded and breathing rapidly that causes the anxiety? Or am I doing this because I'm feeling anxious? <sighs> Without even having to like initially think that I'm changing something, something, you know, begins to happen. And I think that this self-remembrance is similar to the kind of remembrance that Jesus talks about in, in what we call Eucharist, where we're, we're eating in a, a remembrance of him. 
It's what, what Muslims call a zikr. Again, it's a term of remembering ourself and remembering God, but it's a deeper form of recollection. Hmm. But in, in the baby steps, I think, you know, if we, if we start to spend time with ourselves, we begin to recognize the sacredness of even that. And my hope is, and you know, maybe this is sort of Pollyannish, but I'm hoping if we could have a culture of maybe taking the pandemic's lessons and slowing down and beginning to witness ourselves more, to remember ourselves, to observe ourselves more, and begin to see the sacredness of, of the everyday, that there will be fewer divisions between uh, spiritual folks of different persuasions and fewer divisions even between non-theists and, uh, and ardent yeah. believers. Like so much I think we're, we're are arguing about uh, abstract terminology that none of us understands. Like, I don't actually think Dawkins knows what he's talking about when he says the God delusion. But I also don't think a lot of believers know what they're talking about right. when they talk about God. And I don't know if I know what I'm talking about <laughs> when I'm talking about God. And so can we just slow down and start with some really more basic uh, steps and ingredients here? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. A good friend of mine, he, when he talks about theology, he's like, we, we made all this up. So... <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, if you're unhappy with it, we, 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 we gave it this, like we, we, we made this, sure. which, which again is something different. So thank you for that. I said this last time and it's still true. So you got like 97 hats on, although I don't know which one you're wearing, probably dad more often than not with, with the environment yes. that we're in. So where do you want people to go to connect to you to maybe read that full piece that you quoted from a minute ago? Like, where would you send people oh, to sure. kind of get involved with you? Yeah, I mean, on social media, my handle on almost any platform that I'm on is is at real Mike Morell. So R-E-A-L-M-I-K-E-M-O-R-R-E-L-L. So that, that's Facebook, that's uh, Instagram, that's Twitter. So yeah, my off-the-cuff things are there. But honestly, my, my best hub on the web is the same as it was last time I was here. My blog, mikemorell.org. Mm-hmm. And if you go to mikemorell.org forward slash bonus chapter, you can get a, a bonus chapter of, of my book with Father Richard Rohr called The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. And as a bonus, you get signed up to my email list where I, I share reflections and you know occasionally have these uh, really cool interactive opportunities uh, increasingly happening online. So I would love to see you there as well. Well, Mike, thank you again for the night. So much so. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you, Seth. It's been fun. Put your headphones on Turn me out Make sure the soundproof You wanna hear me shout I've always wanted to do one of these, and so let's try it. This show is mixed, edited, and recorded in my basement by me. However, it is produced by the patrons of the show. It is not possible to be produced without them, and so I wanted to welcome the newest members to the patron community. So Matthew Boyle, Valerie Lemelin, and Philip Does. Thank you so much for your support. It truly means the world. And if you're unable to support financially, this and other podcasts like it, Consider just rating and reviewing the show or following it on social media, sharing it with your friends or and or families. I'm going to thank you in advance for your support in whichever form that it comes. That music that you heard today intermingled is from the band Rory. 
You'll find links to their music in the show notes. They are a band that I found a few months ago. I think it was an Instagram live from somebody else. And I've since then just continued to listen to their music. And I really, really like it. I'm grateful for their permission for their music in this episode. And you should definitely check them out. You'll find links to them in the show notes, as well as to the individual tracks. Those are in the Can I Say This at Church playlist on Spotify. Stay safe. Be blessed. We'll be back soon.